I'd like to read a large section of the book of Revelation that might take me a few moments, but bear with me again. It's some of the most beautiful prose in chapter 6 and chapter 7. I'll skip a small section in chapter 7, but I'll alert you to it. But let's give our attention to the reading of God's word from Revelation chapter 6 and 7. Now when I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given each a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Then he lists the tribes. Verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Ivan Karamazov in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov carried around a small little notebook. The notebook contained every instance that he had ever heard of or read of human suffering. The book was chock full. Accidents, torture, cruelty, despair. He specialized in the, in the stories about the suffering of innocent children. The reason why Ivan kept the book around is because as the story goes on, it serves as an indictment against the existence of God. Ivan used the book to say, if this is the way the world is, then how is it possible that there is ever a God? Eugene Peterson said that it is probably true that Ivan's little book is an international bestseller. And I agree. I don't think that there have been a more popular reason for college students to have walked away from the faith of their parents while they're at college for any other popular reason than this one right here. That is, if there is a God in heaven, then why is there the suffering that I see around me? For some, it's an intellectual problem. They can't simply put the two together in God's sovereignty and man's suffering. For others, it is deeply personal. They don't understand why they are suffering. But what I want you simply to entertain, and what we tried to entertain through this entire series, is that the Bible, and Revelation in particular, is just as concerned about that question as you are. Equally so. In other words, John is writing to a people who are themselves suffering. And they know and are aware of the descriptions that John has given us in the last two weeks of the glories and the joys of heaven. But they're looking around at their own lives. They're reading the newspapers. They're going back through their own personal histories and saying, how can that be true and my life be the way it is now at the same time? And so therefore, John writes to these suffering people, to a people that are always going to struggle. And that brings me to a brief point before we dive into our text that I simply want to introduce to you. Some of you have picked up on a little bit, but I want to flesh it out a little bit more. I do not believe that what we have in the book of Revelation are descriptions of events that we are waiting to see happen. 
pause for effect. (laughs) Rather, the book of Revelation is describing events that will always be true in any epoch of history in the church's life, though described for us in highly symbolic and images drawn straight from the Old Testament. There are those, in other words, who try to say that the book of Revelation in its entirety is something that the church is waiting to experience. There are actually others, less popularly so, who believe that everything in the book of Revelation are describing events that are exclusively in our past. But I think that the better view of the text is to say that what John is describing is a pattern of life that will forever be ongoing in the life of the church in every era of human history, including yours and mine. Remember, the scroll that the Lamb is unrolling and opening is God's purposes for all of history. And for that reason, we get a perspective on our own suffering, just like every generation has with the book of Revelation. So just two points this morning. Two points. I want to look, first of all, at the idea of suffering from Revelation chapter 6. And then secondly, I want to look at the idea of sealing, of suffering and of sealing as we look in this. First of all, let's look at John's description of our suffering. You'll notice, first of all, that the seals are broken. Remember, there is a scroll that's been opened in heaven. It's been sealed with seven wax seals that presumably have hardened around the flap of the scroll. And as the lamb approaches the scroll, with each seal that he breaks, something happens. And it's sort of introduced by the four living creatures who scream the word, come. The first four seals, as it were, hang together. They describe much the same thing. The fifth seal gives us the rationale for why it is that the horses are being let loose. And then the sixth seal gives us the ultimate goal for what will happen, the ultimate, what is finally in store for the enemies of God. But we begin with the four riders. The four riders, as they come out uh, at being invited by the four living creatures, having said, come, in my opinion, are almost exactly like the four chariot horses that have come out of the book of Zechariah. In that context of Zechariah, the horses ride to bring judgment on the world. And I don't see that there's any reason to think that these four horsemen ride for any other reason. In other words, they come to judge the enemies of God. But what I simply want to impress upon you this morning is that the four riders are still here. They're riding today, right now. Let's take a look at them. Number one, there is a white horse bringing what? Conquering and conquest. Human history is nothing more than a balance of power that is shifted back and forth with human history. Whether it be the the rise and fall of the Third Reich, or whether it be the Arab Spring, or whether it be the Chinese Revolution, earthly kingdoms will come and go with every generation because the white horse is riding. Secondly, the red horse comes with calamity and slaughter and bloodshed. Christians throughout the era, throughout the epics of history, have shed their blood because of what they have believed and the stand that they have taken for Christ. The black horse comes to bring economic suffering. That is, the living creature explains to us that food has grown exorbitantly high, but the rich are holding the nice stuff to themselves, which is why we're not going to touch the oil and the wine. 
one econ- the Economist magazine of a couple of years ago quoted statistics. It said that in 1979, the top CEOs made an average of 39 times what their employees in their company made. In 2010, after the census came out, that number turned out to be something around a thousand times more than their employees made. The average CEO in America makes a thousand times more than the employees underneath them make. The top 1% earned 20% of all the income in the U.S. in the last census. They own a third of our country. And I'm not even making a political statement about those. Those are simple statistical numbers. That when all of a sudden there's a yawning gap between the very, very wealthy and the very, very poor, you can know for certain that the black horse is riding. And then finally, of course, the pale horse or the sickly horse comes to bring death itself. Death itself, the great equalizer that no one, death has has fallen to every single opponent of the people of God. He is inexorable in his power. And so what are we to learn from the four writers of the apocalypse? (laughs) Well, there's a small little notion I would show in that that I find both disturbing and also deeply encouraging. Because did you notice that the power that the writers were given were indeed given to them? And the question you would need to ask as you looked at that is, who was it that gave the writers that power? But as you read the text, the indication seems clear that the powers that the writers have have come from the throne and from the Lamb. And here we have one of the most disturbing, difficult doctrines in the entire Scripture. And that is that somehow, in some way, God has said that all human suffering is on his chain. That no matter what we might see going on around us and the dismay and the sort of mayhem that goes around us, we can never say in the midst of it, no matter how much it looks like it might be true, that God has nothing to do with this. I've heard many a preacher stand up before God's people who are suffering and hurting in the midst of pain and funerals and say, well, I refuse to believe that God had anything to do with this was once talking to a a dear lady, an elderly lady, who had a friend of hers who was experiencing crushing heartbreak. She had some grandchildren that were born premature. And as the months went on and the doctors did all they could, the little babies passed away one by one. And my friend's friend had looked at her at one point and said, I don't think that I can believe in a God who would allow this kind of thing to happen. And my friend said something that I thought was very wise to her. She said, I hear you, but I would rather believe in a God who allowed the suffering that I'm going through to happen for a reason that he has not told me than to jettison him from the conversation altogether and to think that these things happen to me for no reason. Because don't be fooled, that's the only other alternative. If he is not making sense of my pain, even if he doesn't explain to me how to make sense of my pain, if he does not make sense of it, then my suffering is random. It's purposeless. It's pointless. 
Now, the sovereignty of God over our suffering is exactly what John is comforting these people with. That no matter what you're going through, it is on his chain, and he controls it. Does that answer all of your philosophical questions? Absolutely not. But you know what? You're the creature, and he's the creator. And therefore, I live with the knowledge that he has given me and the sensation that he knows best. When the fifth seal gets opened, we find that God's people are there crying out for justice. All of God's people, the dearly departed, are standing around the throne and they are screaming something to their God. They are saying, when will you avenge our blood? The citizens of heaven crying out to God for justice. One small little asterisk here before we dive into what I think that means. Be very careful what you say to people at funerals. When you assure them that their departed loved ones are so happy where they are that they're not even missing you right now. I heard one pastor at a funeral say that one time to a a newly widowed woman. And I watched as her face absolutely fell with the thought that my husband doesn't miss me. I think actually what the martyrs beneath the altar are saying to us is the longing on the other side continues. The longing for Jesus to make these things right, to fix death in the world. You better believe your departed loved ones miss you. They are crying out on the basis of Revelation chapter 6 that God make an end to these things. But again, the idea of vengeance, we don't like that, do we? That they're shouting, avenge our blood. But you know, we live in a little bit of a cush Western society. My guess is, had we grown up in Croatia, had we grown up in some of the places where Christian martyrs are dying year in and year out, had we seen to the death of our loved ones, we might have had a little bit of a different perspective on the idea of retributive justice. In our enlightened sort of cush world, we don't think about those things. But after a hundred years of genocides in the world, we might have a different perspective of longing for God to make right the things that are wrong, to make, to make right and judge the people who have inflicted harm upon the world. Finally, the sixth seal cracks and John sees what I believe is the end of time. At the end of time, all of those images that he lists there in those last verses of chapter 6 are images straight from the Old Testament of ultimate cataclysm, a time when no other excuses can be made, there's no more delusions that can be entertained, and it ends with this sobering and ominous question, who can stand on that day? Who could possibly stand on that day? That there will be a day, as we said last week, when all of the injustices of the world are righted and are corrected. Which brings us to the second point. John has imaginatively figured the suffering of human beings by the four riders of the apocalypse that I'm trying to say are still riding and will continue to ride until Jesus decides to finally make an end to it. But in the meantime, how is it that God's people are intended to face that? And the answer is, they face it because they are sealed. And welcome to Revelation chapter 7. Because you've got to feel the force of chapter 6 verse 17. And there ought to be a vague sense of panic through you when you hear that. 
that there will be a time when every wrong will be righted. Because if that's true, it's not just those people that will answer for what they've done. It will be me that will answer for what I've done. And you can ask the question, who is it that can stand? And the answer is no one. No one will stand in that day. But in chapter 7, we find out that there is someone who will stand in that day. And it turns out that it's the 144,000. Follow what I'm saying here. There are angels that release the four winds, the calamity. But one of the angels calls out that the sixth seal should not be broken or released. Do not allow the final cataclysm and the final judgment to be released until the servants of our God are sealed. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have two questions to ask. First of all, who are the 144,000? And number two, what is this sealing? I know you're thinking to yourself, how quaint. (laughs) It's not like the last couple hundred years of people haven't tried to figure out who the 144,000 is and Boy, I came on the lucky time when Les Newsom's going to tell me what they are. Before I give you what I am going to, what I think the interpretation of 144,000 is, may I at least give you the freedom to disagree with me? Preachers need to be honest when they say that there are many people who have a lot of controversy over what they believe that number signifies. I simply want to offer to you a plausible explanation that has in view of it the entirety of the teaching of Scripture and in many ways comports with the rest of the teaching of Scripture. And should someone bring you an interpretation of the book of Revelation that you would look at and say, well, you know, I kind of get what we get from Genesis to Jude, but boy, when you get to Revelation, that's where the experts have to take over. No. This is accessible to you. And perhaps you'll be compelled by it the way in which I was. First of all, who are the 144,000? Well, in the midst of all of the debate, I think there are some markers in the text that help us figure out who these people are. Number one, notice the list of the tribes. I didn't read it in the interest of time. But there are a number of places in the Bible where the Bible lists for us the 12 tribes of Israel. But this one is a little bit different. First of all, Dan and Ephraim are not in the list. Those were two tribes, but they're not in the list. But also, Joseph makes it in the list. And he's actually not in any of the other lists. And so what what good commentators will explain is that the list that John is giving is purposely stylized. In other words, he's saying something peculiar about about these, these tribes. He's wanting you to see something that's there. And I think what he's wanting to open you up into is what he means by his use of numbers. Now look. Things turned for me when I was in seminary, and I had a professor open up the meaning of numbers to the Jewish mind. It was a bit of a revelation to me to find out that for a Jewish person, numbers themselves have significance that go far beyond their utility in being able to count. They stood for things. And you would do a small list. For instance, the number three. Three to the Jewish mind is a number of perfection. Four, we find out from ancient Near Eastern sources, is a number of the earth, hence the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth, the four angels of the earth. The number six is a number of imperfection or of evil. The number seven, however, is a number of completeness or perfection. 
10 we find is another number of completion. And 12, we, it turns out, is a number for the Jewish mind that means the total number that there should be. It's not a mistake that you have 12 tribes of Israel and Jesus chooses, oh, go figure, 12 apostles. There's a reason there. So 12 times 12 equals 144. I think John is simply saying that when he heightens the idea by multiplying that times 1,000, that he's simply saying that the 144,000 are the total number of the people of God. It is every single person that God has been saving and drawing to himself throughout every epoch of human history. I see no compelling reason to take that 144,000 literally. And if that makes you uncomfortable, that's okay. (laughs) But I simply want you to notice one more textual clue before I tell you just to take my word for it. Notice what it says there in verse in the opening verses of chapter seven, John hears the number. He hears the number, 144,000. Don't do it until we've sealed up the 144,000. But then he looks and he sees the number. And what does he say about that number? I couldn't count it. (laughs) No one could count it. You see what he means? I heard the number, the symbolic number, and what the number told me was is that it was everybody whom God had intended to draw to himself. But then I looked and I saw, and heaven was loaded with people. (laughs) Heaven was chock full from all people throughout history. So therefore, the 144,000 is you if you're covered in the blood of the Lamb this morning. You are numbered. You are sealed. Sealed. Which brings us to that next thing. What do we mean by the word sealed? Well, in verse 14, he says that those that when you wash your robes and make them white in the blood of the lamb, you are part of the 144,000. It means that the harm that comes upon the enemies of God will not touch you. It won't touch you. First of all, the image of sealing actually comes straight out of the Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 1. Where Paul says, having believed, listen, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. I love that. (laughs) What Paul says is, is you've been given a down payment, a down payment of the Holy Spirit. And right now it's just like little drops. But one day you're going to get the whole inheritance. That's why the hymn writer that you sing this song, I've heard Jim do it here before, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Samuel Rutherford said, look, when the Jews went to Pilate, they said they wanted Jesus's grave sealed. Do you remember this? And they wanted it sealed so that, that his disciples wouldn't steal his body and you know, make up the story that he was risen again from the dead. And so what they would do to the tomb after they rolled the stone is they would put a glob of wax on, one st- on the stone and another glob of wax on the rock and connect it with a cord, ensuring that it not be broken. What that means is, is when you are converted and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, it means that you have been sealed. You are secure forever. And that's why the Bible keeps talking about this. That Jesus says, I know my sheep. They know my voice. No one 
can snatch them out of my hand? Who do you think I am? The certainty of assurance of salvation means that the suffering that I go through, among other things, can never be ultimate suffering. Man, I love this. And this is the reason why I mentioned in our prayer this morning. What this means is that the experience of pain will always be temporary. But pain always resists that, does it not? Pain in the life wants to get its way in and it wants to find its way into the center of who you are and color everything that happens to you. I remember speaking to a father who had lost his child in a horrible accident. And he said, after the years of living with that pain, I realized I would never get over this. I'll never be over this. And he was probably right about that. But he talked about the battle of not letting that tragedy become the only interesting thing about him. Y'all, that's hard. Pain in the life can do that. Tragedy can do it. Disappointment can do it. Anger can do it. Loneliness can do it. It threatens to become the story of my life. But what the ceiling says... The ceiling of the Holy Spirit looks and says, if anything is true, forget about anything else the Holy Spirit does for a second. And own the fact that what he does is he keeps you secure. There is no way that can be threatened. And as those ripples go out, we can listen to the song of the elder. (laughs) Don't you wish that was your song? Where we stand before the throne and we hear them sing to the praises of Jesus. And we hear them talk about every single tear being wiped away from every eye. (laughs) You're not paying attention if that doesn't thrill you. That's what you were built for. And it's so beautiful that it could even crack through the hardness of a guy like Ivan Karamazov. At the end of the book, if you'll remember from the book, he says this. He says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for and that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small mind of man. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity and of all the blood that they've shed. Listen, that it will not only make it possible to forgive, but even to justify what's happened. Do you hear what he's saying? Dostoevsky's saying, what if there was a beauty that was so overwhelming and so powerful and so certain in your future that it could swallow up every moment of anguish that you had in this life, every question you ever offered up, every why God now thought, swallowed up in instantaneous beauty that you could look back and say in that day, it was all worth it. Now, I'm not saying that you should see that today because you can't. That's the definition of being on this side of the door. But doesn't the knowledge that it's out there change things a little bit? Philip Yancey tells the story of some World War II, veter- uh, World War II POW uh, inmates 
who were able with some parts to fashion for themselves a, a little primitive radio where they could pick up signals from the other side. Well, they all remember the day when they heard the signals that the allies had finally taken over their territory and were on the move and they would be there within days. But their German captors had no idea. But you know, they had to think that it was a little bit unusual when the POWs came out with just a little extra, a little extra spring in their step. You want to know why? Because they knew their suffering was temporary. It just, it's so short. It's just for a moment. And when it's all said and done, there'll be a beauty that's capable of making sense of it all. Do I know how? No. But that's the promise of Revelation 6 and 7. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I would confess to you that we struggle to believe that. We struggle to actually own that because the world, Lord Jesus, the news on television works against us believing that. But Father, when we trod on the ground of the heartbreak that's in this room, Father, there, there are so many faces. And some of these faces bear the scars and the, the, deep, the deep wrinkles of, of care and worry and fear and anxiety. It's taking its toll. It's taken its toll. Father, would you be near to that person at this time? Would you give them a small whisper that says, this will not last. This is not your story. But I'm accomplishing my purposes. And one day I promise you, it'll all be worth it. Would you do that?